Hi, Jasmine Lopez here. If you like what you're hearing, you can donate to us by going to radioproject.org and click on the big donate button. And don't forget to rate us on iTunes, which helps other listeners find us. Thanks, and here's the show. On today's Making Contact. The whole process of claiming ownership, not only of your body, but claiming the necessary social and economic conditions to make sense of your life. Because ownership of your body is not enough. Yes, so you're not, quote, enslaved, but you can be enslaved by circumstances. You can be enslaved by a disabling environment. You can be enslaved by not having enough money to pay for your health care or your rent. That was Loretta Ross. She was part of a group of Black women that blazed the path toward reproductive justice in the mid-90s. Today, as we fight off right-wing attacks on abortion rights, she asks us to consider what it would take to have real choices about our bodies. I generally start my presentations by telling you a little bit about my own uh, story. It may sound traumatic, but trust me, I'm way, way over it, so... You know, I'm not telling you this so you can feel sorry for me, but I'm from a very conservative family. My mother and father are, were very, very conservative. They're no longer with me. But my father was in the military, a Jamaican immigrant who was uber patriotic. I mean, you know, he was so happy to have made it to the United States, he couldn't help but serve in three wars and get shot up in two of them. And, you know, considered himself the ultimate American. And my mother was so Christian, she believed in faith healing and Pat Robertson and Oral Roberts and all kinds of stuff. So this is not a background that prepared me to be a professional feminist. (laughs) The beauty of my family, though, is that despite our intellectual differences and our emotional differences, we still manage to love each other and be in contact with each other. Not always, because there was, I spent many, many years absolutely pissed off at my parents. I became pregnant at 14 through incest. A cousin who was supposed to be babysitting me thought it would be a better idea to have sex with me. And this was in the 1960s. So I had very, very few options at that time. Abortion was not legal, but you could imagine that that was not my choice for how I would become a mother. So my only option at that time, as I saw it, was to have my baby and give him up for adoption. And that was very common back then, that when girls became pregnant, they would slide us off to some little hidden place. For me, it was a home for unwed mothers. And then we'd have our babies, we'd give them up for adoption, and then we'd return to high school pretending that we'd just been on extended vacations. Except something went interestingly wrong. The day after my son was born, the nurses made what I always assumed was a mistake, and they bought me my son. And I looked down, and I saw his face, and he had my face. I kept saying, he's got my face, he's got my face, oh he's got my face. And I found that I couldn't go through with the adoption. And so all the plans I made about 
going back to school and pretending that I could put all of this behind me and all of that just suddenly went out the window when in that morning in that hospital I made a decision to parent the child of my rapist. So for 45 years I've been tethered to my rapist, which is a very interesting way to parent, to say the least. And my son has had to deal with the fact that his father is by no means perfect, was a pedophile. He also is dead now, but he was a pedophile. My son had to deal with that. So we've had a very complicated story, but I really don't regret keeping my son because a few years later I was sterilized by a doctor who felt that I'd already had a kid. So... It turns out that the child I had was my only chance to become a parent. So my when and where I enter story is that I entered this movement being pissed off by not having choices. Because no young girl should be sexually abused by a relative. And once that happens, I should still have choices over whether or not I choose to have a baby and then I should still have choices if I want to have further children. All of those choices were denied to me before I was even 19 years old. And so I took the rage. I internalized it for a long time. I probably am still internalizing it. You know, I've been in therapy for I don't know how long. So I was very lucky that when I went off to college, I went off to college in Washington, D.C., and in 1972, the very first rape crisis center in this country was founded, the D.C. Rape Crisis Center. And a girlfriend of mine who was in the Black Panther Party, Nakinji Ture, convinced me to go over to the Rape Crisis Center as a volunteer. And I told Nakinji, I don't want to go over there. I don't want to work with those white women. <laughs> and Nakinji went, Sister, you think a panther would lead you wrong? I was totally intimidated. I mean, this woman broke down weapons, and, you know, she was part of the Black Liberation Army. I was trying to figure out what oppression was. I mean, you know? So thanks to the Kinji, I ended up over at the D.C. Rape Crisis Center. They taught me that what had happened to me had happened to thousands of other poor black women across the country, that I wasn't alone, that it was possible to recover from the drama and trauma of my life. They taught me what feminism was. And I've been a professional feminist ever since. So this is my when and where I enter story. And the whole process of claiming ownership, not only of your body, but claiming the necessary social and economic conditions to make sense of your life. Because ownership of your body is not enough. Yes, so you're not, quote, enslaved, but you can be enslaved by circumstances. You can be enslaved by a disabling environment. You can be enslaved by not having enough money to pay for your health care or your rent. So we have to talk about what does ownership of our body really mean and what are the necessary enabling conditions we need in order to truly say 
that is ours. Since 1997, I've been involved with a group of women of color called Sister Song. One of the things that Sister Song has pioneered is the concept of reproductive justice. Reproductive justice was actually invented by a group of black women in 1994. And I was fortunate enough to have been a part of those black women where we were in a hotel room in Chicago. Just having returned from the International Conference on Population and Development in Cairo, Egypt. And what we found was that feminists from around the world were using the human rights framework to lay claim to a much more expansive set of rights than we were doing in the United States only using the privacy framework and the U.S. Constitution. That slaveholder document called the U.S. Constitution has never worked for including us. Actually, it's never worked for including anybody but property-owning white men. What we found when we got back from Cairo was that we were very dissatisfied with the isolation of abortion rights from social justice issues, from human rights issues. And this was done often inadvertently by the pro-choice movement, so much so that nowadays the majority of the American public doesn't even see abortion as medical care. They separate it like, Abortion shouldn't be part of health care reform. And we're like, well, hell, you don't go to an auto mechanic to have one. <laughs> you go to a medical practitioner. <laughs> and we actually offered a critique of both the pro-choice and the pro-life movement. Because they don't really either understand how women actually live our lives. Meaning that every time a woman thinks she is pregnant. She doesn't even have to actually be pregnant. She just has to think she's pregnant. Like you missed your period and you go, oh my God. Oh my God, I'm late. Oh my God, what am I gonna tell my mother? Oh my God, what am I gonna tell my partner? Oh my God, can I stay in school? Will I get fired from my job if I decide to keep this? Oh my God. I mean, this is the real conversations that go on in women's heads when that period is just a little bit late and you know you've been sexually active and you're like, oh, <laughs> The answers to those oh my God conversations are gonna determine whether she's ready to become a parent or not. If she doesn't have health care, if she's worried about getting battered by her partner, she may not be ready to become a parent. And so neither the pro-choice nor the pro-life side pays attention to the conditions in a woman's life before she becomes pregnant. They only take up the cause once she is pregnant. One trying to say, we're giving her choices, and the other saying, we're trying to take away her choices so that she has the baby. But if you don't pay attention to those oh my God considerations, you're not giving her choices that make sense because it's not a choice to continue a pregnancy if you fear violence, if you fear eviction, if you fear expulsion from school or loss of your job. That's not a choice. 
Isolating abortion from women's lived experiences, in our opinion, does not serve women well. And so once we discovered that the international movement was using the human rights framework, we came up with the concept of reproductive justice. And reproductive justice is basically the right to have a child, the right not to have a child, and the right to parent the children that you have in safe and healthy environments. Now, we say the right to have a child because we are from communities of color who are always subjected to strategies of population control, where our right to be mothers is often deeply contested. But we also joined with the pro-choice movement in fighting for the right to abortion, to birth control, to sex education, to abstinence, if you can hold on. (laughs) So reproductive justice is not a way to avoid saying abortion. It just goes beyond abortion. And then we have to fight for the right to parent our children in safe and healthy environment, the right for incarcerated women to parent, the right for people who are disabled to express their parenting right, trans people to become parents. All of these rights to parent are ways that we have to fight for not only the expression of our desires, but to do so in safe and healthy environments. So that means that we have to fight against gun violence as part of the right to parent, fight against environmental toxins as part of the right to parent, fight against the school-to-prison pipeline, you know, fight against all these things that jeopardize our children and our right to parent because we take a much more holistic approach to what control over your body means because it's not just about your body, but it's about the enabling conditions that are necessary for you to have choices that make sense. That was Loretta Ross, co-founder of Sister Song, speaking at the University of Guelph in Guelph, Ontario. If you're just tuning in, this is Making Contact. Incarcerated mothers have been fighting for the right to have children and raise them in safe and healthy environments. Tina Reynolds, co-founder and chair of Women on the Rise, telling her story, shares how formerly incarcerated women in New York found power in their experiences. My Deepest Fears by Janet Tavares was that I would never be able to come from behind the wall. I remember the first time I went behind in 1989. Rikers Island, I was terrified. I sat up all night on my cot holding my knees close to my chest. I did six months. I was glad to go home. I didn't stay glad for long because I went back behind the wall six months later. This time, I went to Taconic Correctional Facility. First, I hit Bedford Hills, where I saw the board and got hit with three months, added to the one and a half I was already sentenced to serve. This time, I wasn't scared at all. I knew what awaited me behind the wall, to fight, fight, and fight. In fact, I was good at fighting. So even behind the wall, I was put behind another wall, which had four walls, and a door. This place is called the box. My food was served through the slot. Guard would bang on the door and yell, chow. Slowly but surely, 
my spirit for life was dying, and I didn't even realize it at the time. My spirit was dying because at times I preferred the box than to be in general population. Behind the wall, I could survive. There is a big difference between surviving and living. I was not prey, but at times I could be a predator and feed on those weaker than me. Little by little, I became cold and uncaring like the walls they kept me in. Once again, I went home. That sounds funny now to say home, because if it was home, why didn't I try to stay? Again, I returned behind the wall, this time two and a half years, to a place we call Far Beyond, a.k.a. Albion, eight and a half hours away from so-called home. I had become conditioned to being behind the wall. Then one day in Far Beyond, I realized that I was no longer 23 years old when I first started jailing going behind the wall. Now, I was 28. Where had all the years gone? What did I do in this time? Nothing except die behind the walls, a death of dreams, hopes, and so many aspirations for life. The worst death I suffered was the death of my spirit. I looked around and saw my reality, to grow older and colder behind the wall. I thought one day I will be old in these hills, knitting booties. Then the fear set in again. I will remain behind the wall if I don't change. Change did not come easy at all, but it came. Change was hard for me on the outside. In fact, at time I felt it was easier behind the wall. I felt I had no purpose. Even worse, I felt worthless. I have a brother who did 20 years behind the wall. He found life outside the wall. He found his purpose and worth while behind the wall. He found out that his true father is a king. He is the son of the only king there is. In this process of change, I struggled with so many dreams and demons. Now I really needed to fight. Fight for a life, fight for dreams, fight for hope, fight to find my purpose, fight to gain a spirit, fight to find a life outside the walls that had kept me prisoner for so long. Even worse was my own self-inflicted prison of my mind. This has been my hardest fight. I'm trying to find a better way. I came across some women who found a better way than being behind the wall. These women helped me find a purpose and worth. I could truly find my true worth as the daughter of a king. So today I stand before you free in so many ways, free because I found life outside the wall. Women on the Rise Telling Her Story is an organization that's run and led by currently and formerly incarcerated women. And the reason why our stories are so important is because it informs people who have not had the experience of being in prison, the experience of prison, and that's exactly what it is. It's an experience. I'm formerly incarcerated. I was arrested 61 times. I served in total five and a half years in the state facility. I've been home for 19 years. My last arrest, I was arrested pregnant. I gave birth to my son behind the wall. 
and I was shackled and handcuffed during birth and delivery. I walked out of prison with my son who was nine months old and I swore that I'd never go back there again. However, I knew who I was leaving behind and I knew that I was leaving a multitude of sisters who would experience the dehumanizing and oppressive conditions that I had experienced and theirs would be ongoing while I was going on home. And I had to do something about it. So my mission has been and my passion has been to change the practices both in prison and outside of prison. But how do you do that? One of the challenges we had was how do we address a system that basically keeps you from partnering with each other because our parole mandates say that we're not allowed to be in the same room with another formerly incarcerated person on parole. But yet, parole will place us in the same programs together. So we decided to do our organizing work in organizations where they mandated us to. So we began doing that. We began supporting our sisters when, when they came home. And we found them jobs. We offered them mutual aid. We found places for them to have conversations, to talk about the trauma, to sit down and eat food, to talk about their children. We gave them opportunities to really confront the systems and their collateral consequences that they were facing in reunification and housing employment. And we found ourselves really successful. So we decided to take on policy. The other thing that we found out was that, you know, they were taking our children and they were putting them up for adoption. And during the times that most of us were doing time, our median sentence was 36 months. They have a law in New York, and it's a federal law that's throughout the nation, and each state basically is an island unto itself on how these federal laws are passed and how they want to run these laws. So within New York, the Adoption Safe Families Act states that if you are incarcerated or in treatment 15 to 22 months, they could begin to terminate your parental rights. Now, this was enacted in 1976. During the time in 1976, median sentence was 24 months. In 1998, it was 36 months. So how realistically, if you got a 36-month sentence, could you plan for the unification of your child if they were placed in foster care due to your incarceration and your child would be there and they would begin to determine parental termination in 15 to 22 months? There's no way you would be able to plan for your child. And so what we did was we, um, specific to New York, we established what's called an Adoption Safe Families Act Expanded Discretion Law, which is a law to look at particular cases where women are in prison and women are in treatment and that their relationship with their child should be considered prior to a caseworker and a judge terminating parental rights. So if, let's say she has a newborn baby, right? She doesn't have a relationship with the newborn baby, but she has other children that are in foster care. Look at that relationship that she has with the children. Was she there? Was she consistent with them? And make a case-by-case -case rather than an overall decision on terminating a person's right and looking at the sentence that, that the person is saving before the termination of their parental rights was placed in front of the judge and passed. So we were able to pass that in 2009. It saved a lot of parents from having their parental rights terminated. 
And women do time looking to be with their children once they're released. They cry for their children. They have fights for their children. And in most cases, because they're arrested and they're serving time for drug cases, it's not until the fog is lifted that they really realize that they've left their children behind. It never means that they don't love their children. We know that. And so what we did was we began establishing ways in which we identified women in the criminal justice system and then historically times in which women resisted. And we began sharing those stories of resistance that was happening throughout our history of incarceration. And once we began identifying those instances of resistance, we started developing the history and timeline of women impacted by the criminal justice system to identify the stats and the numbers and the increase of women going to prison and the policies that were enacted that impacted women specifically so that we would become educated about those policies historically that little by little grew prisons for women specifically and took us out of the world and out of our communities and out of our children's lives so that we began to discuss that. Then we began to discuss how many years collectively we had spent in prison together. And so when you had 12 women in a room and you had every one of them telling you how much time they spent, there were times when we had 127 years of prison time in the room out of 12 women. And we talked about the loss of time and ability and asset and how much we were you know, not able to add to our families based on the time spent collectively how much we were unable to add to our communities based on the time spent collectively inside prison, and that impacted us. So we did workshops where we just sounded out our voices and just heard what we sounded like, where it was just really simple with sounds, just ohm and ha and just breathing, you know, just to be able to hear our voices. Very simple type of participatory practices, getting in touch with our conditioned reaction to things, how we've been conditioned or conditioned ourselves to react to things, to touch, to people being close to us, to people being in our space, and really talking about what that means, that uncomfortability and the inability to actually be able to be in a space with other women in prison and not be able to touch each other. Or when we, w when we would touch each other, how we would be locked away for touching each other or being with each other intimately in ways in which the police defined it as being unacceptable. So we talked about all of those things and it's really important to bring women back to their groundedness. You know, It's like having that sacred space and that ability to get in touch with spirit, to get in touch with self, to be fully self-expressed. Once we did that, we were able to sit down and then start talking about what type of problems that we saw. And we could always talk about the problems. We could always talk about what we felt inside. But then, because we were never asked what might be some of the solutions, it was hard to get at that. So then we framed, we reframed the problem conversation to the solution conversation. Once we did that, our sisters on the outside began to think about the sisters on the inside. I was able to get the sisters who had come out and been trained in this to go into the prison and begin to train women inside. And we started a sister inside project. One of the questions for the women inside was like, how could we actually do this work without getting locked up in SHU, the secure housing unit? And so, you know, 
we would always ask them to not do anything that was too adverse against the practices, but to let us know what was happening so that we would be able to do a little bit more on the outside. But we wanted them to build leadership amongst their sisters inside. We wanted them to train them. We wanted them to begin using their same practices that we practice about self-expression and gaining voice. Not leaving your sisters behind is important. You have to bridge those two worlds between the sisters on the inside and the outside. That was Tina Reynolds, co-founder and chair of Women on the Rise Telling Her Story, speaking at the University of Guelph in Guelph, Ontario. That does it for this edition of Making Contact. The speeches you heard on today's show were originally produced and recorded by Carly Forbes for Migrant Matters, a rabble.ca podcast. You can learn more about reproductive justice on our website, radioproject.org. If today's show raised questions for you, share it with a friend. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. The Making Contact team includes Lisa Rudman, Marie Cha, RJ Lazada, Anita Johnson, Monica Lopez, Vera Tykolsker, and Sabine Blazant. I'm Marie Cha. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.